Greetings, and welcome to Talking Trek to You, a podcast where a newbie and an expert boldly go through Star Trek episode by episode. My name is Kev Kozer, and I'm here with my co-host, JJ McQuarrie. Say hi, JG. Hey there, Kev. How are you this week? I am co-host Kozer. I am co-host Kozer. No, I am no, not. No, you, you've been split. No. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, so, yeah, this is where you introduced the episode today, JG. <laughs> Well, I mean, if that didn't give everything away, then I don't know what will. This week, we are going to be talking about The Enemy Within, which means we have to deal with that marvellous prospect of William Shatner's acting as our principal prop for the entire episode. But, of course, we are not going to be covering it alone. We have our guest, as usual. So, say hello, Abby. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm doing well, thank you. Fantastic. Very very glad to hear it. And um, thank you for joining us on our little adventure through Star Trek. Oh, yeah. Always. So, um, as, as we always do with our guests when, uh, when we're introducing them, um, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself and your history with the show? Yes, a little bit about myself, a history show. Um, I, uh, I'm an American living in the Netherlands, where I work actually as an assistant professor in media studies at Utrecht University, um, when I am not uh, just saying a lot of nonsense on Twitter. Um, my history with Star Trek, I was a big, massive Star Trek fan as a child um, when Next Generation was still airing in the last few years of it. Um, it was something my mom got me into, um, and then I think she regretted um, because I, I took it <laughs> way too far, <laughs> as you do when you're, you know, like seven to ten years old. Um, and then, you know, I think my, my mom still likes to talk about how I made her take me to the the local area Star Trek convention. Um, and even though, you know, she's a big fan, uh, she really did not like that experience um, and will still mm-hmm. remind me of it uh, 20 years later, 30 years later, Jesus. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's, uh, you know, that my, so I was, I was a big fan as a child and then kind of fell out of it. Um, I think as, as the nineties went into the two thousands um, and then got back into it again, I would say maybe five or six years. I think, you know, probably when, um, the, the repeat started showing up on Netflix. Um, you know, I, I got back into it and, you know, and then I would go, go back to visit my parents and, uh, BBC America would be just showing next generation all day. Um, and so I got back into it and now it is as it was when I was eight. Um, once again, you know, a, a core facet of my personality. So that's my history. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. I, I have the same story for what it's worth, except with my dad and, and uh, Doctor Who. That my, my dad used to use me as an excuse to watch Doctor Who, and now deeply <laughs> regrets it because of just how obsessed I've become by the whole story. So um, yeah, I, I very much understand where you're coming from there. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Okay, well, let's get into the episode proper, and as always, we will start with our summary. Kev, if you'd be so kind. The Enemy Within features uh, Captain Kirk and Sulu down on a planet doing a geological study i believe regardless uh a dog a very cute i'm sorry a very cute alien who is definitely not a dog in a suit uh is beamed (laughs) up but experiences some difficulties uh kirk beams up afterwards and then you see another kirk beam up after him oh no the dog happened later regardless you see a kirk beam up and another kirk happen um and yeah this evil kirk starts running around acting animalistic in nature in ways both funny and uncomfortable, which we'll get into. Uh, then the dog is beamed up, and they just, that's when they discover that this transporter malfunction is splitting people into two parts of themselves. Uh, Kirk and Spock manage to sedate the, let's call them, evil Kirk, but that we discover the good Kirk is unable to make decisions or be very captainly. Uh Kirk tries to talk to the evil Kirk to get him to make a decision. The evil Kirk starts running amok again. Uh, The two Kirks square off, and finally Kirk decides to do the dangerous thing of combining himself again, which winds up being a success, and Captain Kirk is restored, and the team on the planet is saved. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Yeah, so we have... I don't want to say a classic here, because I don't think it's that, but we definitely have... Mm -hmm. um, an archetype, maybe that's a better way of putting it, uh, for so many different parts of Star Trek as uh, the series is going to go forward. 
Uh, but Abby, let's start with you. Um, just sort of in broad terms, how did you find this episode? What did you think of it? Um, interesting. What I think be the first <laughs> the first thing I can say, and you know, it's a very I could say a, a, perhaps a very academic answer in that um, you know there there are it's it's really interesting. I wouldn't call it always enjoyable or good, um, but still, you know, and, and to, to use the Star Trek word, fascinating. Um, there's a lot of things going on in it that are really interesting. I mean, for one, as you mentioned, it's sort of the the, the first establishment of the the transporter shenanigans um, trope, which you know is why I wanted to do this one in the first place because I love the establishment of things that can you know kind of then be used in so many different ways. Um, but it's also very very much of its era um, in a way that is is interesting looking back on, but also kind of weird would be my would be what I say about it. Yeah, I think that that's probably a very apt summation of it. Very, very much of its era. Um Kev, how did you find it? Yeah, I mean that's I'm pretty much in sync with Abby. Um I of the five episodes we've seen, I have yet to see one I've disliked from the original series. But this is the closest yet. <laughs> I, I just think I, there's definitely things that I'm I liked about it. Definitely things we're gonna talk about that are uh interesting to repeat the word. But yeah, it it feels the most formless in script. The other four felt like they had much more clear stakes and drive. And then the more uncomfortable 60s-ness of it felt even more like relevant here than in like a Charlie X, where they were already to the four. It's um yeah, it it's just an episode that like I definitely enjoyed watching, but it was very much on that line of whether I'd call it a good or bad experience. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think I would. I think I would very much go along with that, and I think that time locked aspect of it is one of the things which sort of marks it out in a way that I don't think any of the episodes that we've really covered so far have managed in quite the same way. Like particularly Charlie X is a very, uh, like you mentioned, Kev, that that episode, but it has a very kind of, it has a very time locked view of kind of adolescence and all that kind of stuff. But it's not. I mean, you certainly wouldn't call it universal, but it's not. You could kind of get away with doing an episode like that, especially if it was a sort of like a mutants thing or an X-Men thing. You know, there's plenty of examples of that kind of, um, you know, this thing is a stand in for puberty that, that still gets made now. This, however, mm. I don't think you could probably get away with doing it quite the same way. No. And and there's there's kind of many reasons for that. Um, it has a fairly simplistic uh, approach to uh, psychology. I think it's fair to say the idea that people are simply good or simply evil and that that can be distilled down into some kind of fundamental essence. Uh, it's it's, it's a, a weird kind of balancing act between sort of pop psychology and kind of um character work and it's kind of it's really interesting i think that like okay, you mentioned this is the fifth episode because we're, we're doing this in production order the last episode that we covered was um, the naked time which had everybody <laughs> acting out of character and this episode we now have kirk acting out of character they seem really determined earlier on in the show not to give us that much of a handle on on how we're supposed to be kind of appreciating our, our core cast and there is some good material for the core cast here i think particularly spock and mccoy but you know I, it's quite early on in the series to be doing this kind of thing with your lead character and i i think you know also you know we sort of talk about pop psychology but also kind of it being very much of the time sort of the way they react you know the sort of the way the reactions sort of the explanations they give for kind of these things is is very much you, I don't think you could do them days because I don't think people would understand it um, in the sense that like you or or get it or accept it. This kind of thing that it was again, when I talk about very of the time, this idea that, OK, Kirk needs his, you know, the animal, you know, the, the animal wants to rape the yeoman side to command um, is a very like, OK, this is an odd claim to be making that I don't know would pass these days. Um and also, you know, the, and this kind of, okay, we're fusing together all, you know, we, we're overcoming this purely through our own intelligence, which is this sort of refrain through here. And that is what I say very of the time, because you do see that in other 60s sci-fi as kind of this trope um, in a way that you really do not see it these days, which I found very interesting to kind of see it again. I mean, yeah, if we're just going straight into the sort of the, the just 
psychology aspects yeah. of the 60s and all that very much i mean the idea of that men will be men and this is what men want to do is just yeah. so ingrained into the culture it's yeah it, and also not even just so they want to but it's necessary but it, it, right. but it can be overcome it can be sort of overcome but it's not i think the thing that that's the thing that i found one of the things i found rewatching that is interesting you know you kind of you have this idea in your head of this episode as okay there's the good kirk and the bad kirk except we never really see the good kirk even being good we just kind of yeah. see him like lazing around. We see him exhibiting it's... compassion, though. I mean, particularly when it comes to the the the, the definitely not a dog in a costume. Like he's he's so <laughs> reluctant to even like sacrifice the life of this one dog. You know, it's like, oh, please take care of it. We do get to see you know that compassionate side coming out, and and it's expressed in deeply odd ways. But but there is you know yeah, a dog in a costume is not necessarily everybody's idea of you know the ultimate act of compassion. But you know it's fine. You know it, he's expressing concern for an animal which is otherwise helpless. So there are little moments of it, but I don't think it's as emphasized as much as it could be. But I think that's also one of the problems that this script faces because with Kirk being split in two, essentially you have you know, the the William Shatner all-you-can-eat scenery buffet where he just <laughs> chews his way through everything and then some. Um, and then on the other side, he's got this kind of sort of quiet, rather almost demure sort of performance. And actually, Shatner is really good at doing, in inverted commas, good Kirk. Um, yeah. But it's completely drowned out by everything else in the episode. So it's it kind of... You know, it's 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 hard to get away from the I'm Captain Kirk stuff when you know to listen to him wax lyrical about a wee dog in a in a, in a costume. You know, it's yeah. it's that's a tough sell. Yeah, yeah. My notes say time to let Shatner be even hammier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I want to definitely give credit to Shatner even beyond like the different shirts and the scratches on the <laughs> face. You can always tell which Kirk is which just by the way he holds himself. And that's not nothing performance-wise. Oh. It's it only speaks to a very innate talent that he has. But I mean, you're right. When especially when it comes to evil Kirk, you can just have too much of a good thing. Yeah, I think you know he has to. You know, he does interesting work when he has to restrain himself because it doesn't come as naturally. Um, but instead of, of course, you know, he just gets to be even hammier in this one. Well, I think the telling thing about his performance as Evil Kirk is that he kind of gets worse at it as the episode goes along. <laughs> I think one of the things... <laughs> it really just does. I think one of the things which is... like, well, Obviously, we have to talk about the attempted rape scene. Um, yeah. That's, that's, that's very clear. But I think one of the reasons that that scene is so disconcerting, quite apart from the fact that... You, like. Like you said, Abby, you probably just would not get sexual assault portrayed that way these days anymore. But um, the way that Shatner leans into that performance, it, he isn't hammy in that moment. And he's really playing Evil Kirk as cunning, as smart, as, um, as you know, that side of Kirk's nature. And I think that side of it is kind of... I don't want to say that this justifies that scene necessarily, but the idea that to be a good leader, which is really what the episode is about, that you require cunning, that you require uh, a degree of force, that you require a degree of ruthlessness, is that's kind of what the episode is getting at. But the rape or attempted rape scene kind of takes all that too far and way too early in the episode as well. Um, so it kind of yeah. undermines a lot of that kind of yeah. later work which goes into it. But Kirk is really, evil Kirk is really cunning in that scene. Yeah. He manipulates Janet's uh, emotions, uh, Janice's emotions rather. And he, he uh, plays off the fact that she's obligated to respect him because of the imbalance of power between them. There's something really... I think fundamental in that scene that it's trying to get at, but it's not quite good enough in terms of the writing, mm -hmm. I think to, to land that, yeah. but Shatner's performance is good enough. And that, that's the really amazing thing about that scene. He's phenomenal in it. Both of them are as well. Full credit to Grace Lee Whitney, who really plays that balance between um, her respect for his role and what he's trying to do and her understanding of it and all that kind of stuff. It's a very complex role. And she's really, really good in it. But the whole thing is tonally off, and it it yeah. can't 
overcompensate from that. And but Shatner yeah. is great. And as he goes yeah. through the episode, that greatness kind of fades away. And it's yeah. <laughs> and then we get I'm Captain Kirk. I'm Captain Kirk. And and it yeah. all just kind of falls into that trap. And that's a real shame. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I would agree. I think, you know, yeah, one of the things I saw I saw is the tone is just in general weird in the episode and the pacing is weird. It's just a weirdly put together episode even outside of all of the weird pop psychology of it. Yeah. I, I want to circle back to Grace Lee Whitney's performance. And I mean, this is a recurring theme we've seen in every episode we've covered where the character of Rand seems to tragically only exist to be sexually harassed. And then on top of that, Grace Lee Whitney's performance is always incredible as a grounded realistic performance of someone being sexually harassed where you feel really bad for them. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, it's, it's, it's credit to her. She's such a good actor. And I mean, I mean, I don't know when or if we'll ever breach the topic of why she had to leave the show, those tragic reasons, maybe better to just look them up, but it, it's just such like a depressing thing that that character is like the whole history of that character is uncomfortable basically. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a very, it's a very yeah weird character, you know, yeah. Uncomfortable. And then just kind of the role she's supposed to play and all, you know, it's very, yeah. Yeah. I would agree on that. If there's any character that Strange New Worlds could like um, resurrect in the same way of Avenga or uh, Chapel, I think that would be one for a future season for them to yeah. really like give her due. Yeah, for, and for, you for know what it's worth, she has cropped up in a few of the spin-offs. She's she's in I think three or four of the movies. Uh, she's in right. um, she's in an episode of Voyager, so she does kind of get the opportunity. Like when there's a chance to bring her back she does come back. She doesn't necessarily always get much to do, but there's at least an acknowledgement that, you know, she both in terms of why she exited the series and in the fact that her character never really gets her fair crack of the whip. You know, there is some acknowledgement that at least they're, you know, paying fealty to her. They're, they're, they're making an effort to try and include her in later iterations of the series. Uh, but that's always been the thing with Rand. Uh, Grace Lee Whitney is a really good actor and it comes across so well in this episode, how good she is. But the character of Rand herself is kind of nothing. There's no mm -hmm. sense of her existing, like you said, Kev, like she kind of seems to exist for men to leer over or for her to be assaulted or for her to be there as, you know, this kind of, uh, you know, traditional object of male lust. There's no sense of it. Well, like, what does she do when she's not trying to fight off the advances of her evil captain? There's no, like, does she like art or music? Is she really into line dancing? Maybe she enjoys painting clouds. I don't know. Nobody does because she has no character at all. She's completely programmatic. She just exists to be this one thing. And it's such a shame because in Grace Lee Whitney, they've really found an actor who could bring this character to life. And yet she's really given so little to do. It feels like such a waste. Really it is. stands such sorry. I was gonna say it stands such contrast to um like how even at this point, this early on, like Sulu and Uhura, like we we see their hobbies. She likes to sing, he likes to <laughs> tend plants and fence. I mean, little things, but just give the characters so much depth already when they were just guest stars, uh going by the opening credits. So it's yeah, it is just such a shame that Rand um just yeah, has nothing much to do. No. And a really wa waste of that sort of weaved beehive thing that she wears, which is incredible. <laughs> it's it's a whole thing, right? It's it's yeah. it's a look and a half. Uh, it is a look and a half. <laughs> but she can she can pull it off, and that's that's the thing. Oh, yeah. um, you know, she looks she looks fabulous. There's no doubt about it. Um, but like in terms of this episode's misjudgment, since that's kind of what we're talking about at the moment. Uh, I would feel remiss not to mention that last scene with Spock, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is, I mean, like of all the moments in this episode that are uncomfortable, yeah. funnily, that's the one I think is actually worse. Like we get the the whole attempted rape scene in the um, in in Rand's cabin is uncomfortable, but it's meant to be uncomfortable. It's written that way. It, you're meant to be horrified by the way that this character is, is treating Rand, you know. Whereas that last scene where it's all played for laughs and like 
Spock is kind of leering after her and like, yeah, 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 yeah. You kind of wanted it, didn't you? It's it's yeah. awful. It's so badly yeah. misjudged. It is real bad. It is. Yeah, it, it's exactly. It's just like this weird misjudgment in a lot of these things. It's just like, yeah, you know, of course it's. Yeah. Yeah. And for, and for Spock of all people to say that, you know, it just seems. Yeah, exactly. A Spock of all people. I'd yeah. love to. I'd love to know if that was part of uh, Richard Matheson's original script, or if that's something that Gene Roddenberry inserted. Because this script was heavily rewritten by Gene Roddenberry, much yeah. to Richard Matheson's yeah, that disapproval. Does, does seem like and, a bit of a Roddenberry edition. Yeah, it doesn't really seem yeah. like something that that has any other place in the episode. So I'm going to go ahead and chalk that one up to a, a very, very bad Gene Roddenberry rewrite. Yeah, because oof, oof. Yeah. Yeah. That, again, what I say is, you know, the sort of the, the the past is a foreign country sort of notes, but oof, it is hard. Yeah, I mean, just going off memory alpha, I can't really find. Um, I definitely was rewritten. But that's all I can sort of see. Uh, the, the other big addition that Roddenberry or other F staff added was the whole uh, B plot of the crew freezing on the planet. Which Rath is right. like, oh, I hate B plots to slow the action down, but kind of necessary to have any dramatic stakes to this episode. That's already a little like, I mean, yeah, the conflict between the Kirks, of course, but uh, the ticking clock, I definitely very smart TV edition. Yeah, yeah, you needed that because I mean, again, already the pacing is kind of weird this episode. Um, you know, it just kind of it, as as you mentioned, Kevin, kind of goes on in places that just kind of it feels weird like that. Yeah. Um, so it really needs that sort of urgency of okay, the 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 crew is freezing to death on the planet, so we have to fix this. We can't just like right. let this you know keep kind of rambling on, and it's already rambling on a bit. <laughs> you need something to give it that fifty minutes of like screen time limit. I mean, I yeah, I don't want to say every TV episode needs something like that, but it's always an it always sort of helps. And mm. so yeah, I, I just think. These are Richard yeah. Matheson. I don't know if he's done much else TV. I guess he's done a lot of, I'm looking at his Wikipedia now. He has done like a lot of television, I guess, around the time. Uh, yeah, he's a big name Western for Star Trek to have. Yeah. Like, you know, he, I mean, yeah. apart from anything, he wrote, he, he, yeah, but, oh, yeah. but he wrote I Am Legend. I mean, yes. you know, that's that's not that. And he wrote um, Terror at 20,000 Feet, which is, you know, famously the Twilight episode with, uh, with William Shatner. Or one of the Twilight episodes mm-hmm. with William Shatner. You know, he's he's la- he's a big deal writer to have on this series, and yet I kind of do agree. I I kind of um think the episode does need some extra juice beyond the conflict just between the two Kirks because there's nothing else in this episode. There's no Klingons. There's no monsters or stompy stompy bad guys or evil alien probes or anything else. It's just. It's just this kind of existential crisis that Kirk is being put through. And, you know, whilst that's good and interesting, like having that extra threat does lend something to it. I'm pretty sure if you're on a planet that was at minus 120, you wouldn't be getting beamed up at the end of the episode with minor, you know, like, frostbite and, and, and no. a little bit of exposure. You'd be dead. But, they you know... Magic yeah, blankets, you know. Yeah. <laughs> we, we can, if we, if we can stretch the transporter splitting people, we can stretch to people surviving minus 120-somethings. Yeah. The blankets were magic, and also they didn't have face protection for some reason. Television. <laughs> yeah. A, a very... A uh, classic sci-fi script problem of we don't fully understand the numbers we're saying and not thinking through the implications <laughs> of these precise measurements that we are just using to I, I shout out. Oh, really, the numbers going up. I really like the fact. <laughs> oh, numbers! Oh no, the numbers! I really like the fact that they make no effort to explain the ore or whatever. It's just like <laughs> he got some stuff in his uniform. It's knackered the transporters. <laughs> That's right. it. But the thing is, that's all you need. Like even even in season one of Next Generation, you would have um, I don't know Picard or you would have O'Brien or somebody saying, "Oh well, it's because mm. the isomagnetic core knackered the 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 blah, 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 and you just have this you know avalanche of baffle gap that achieved nothing. Here, Scotty just says, "Yeah, some kind of ore it's knackered it. We have to fix it. Yeah. That's it." Yeah. What do you yeah. want? <laughs> it's, 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 it's such a it's such yeah. a silver age sci fi thing, but I love it. It's just like just get on with it. It's just some stuff. Some stuff. Yeah. It's broken. This is the outcome. We don't care. Be grateful. It's not which green. Is great. Which is great. <laughs> yeah, 
I guess might as well hard pivot to a new topic. I think this is our first episode where it's an extended Spock-McCoy debate. Obviously, they Ooh, have, yes. haven't agreed previously, but in terms of like the whole philosophical argument of the episode, playing between the two, and the song I've assured <laughs> comes up multiple times. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this is, I think, our unless you can, unless I'm severely forgetting something, JG. No, no, first no, you're right. Sort of, right. Their debate has been central. Yeah, first time debate has been central to the episode. Well, and it, it, uh, there, there could be no clearer example of the the uh, the id, the ego, and the superego uh, triumvirate than right. this episode. I mean, it's just played straight down the line that way. Um, but <laughs> it is great. And like McCoy doesn't get a lot of screen time in this episode, not compared to Spock and, and obviously Kirk. Uh, but he's such a presence. And mm-hmm. it's that thing, we've, we've mentioned it before in the podcast about DeForest Kelly and the fact that we will never not praise him. But again, like all praise to DeForest Kelly, he gets so little screen time and does so much with it. He brings so much characterization. And even the moment where Spock is forced to admit that he agrees with McCoy, you know, oh, it must be a first. Um, but even in those little moments... He lands that sense that McCoy is absolutely and completely his own thing, both part of it and apart from it as well. It's a brilliant little um, episode for McCoy. And I don't think it's generally known as one of being like McCoy's um, biggest episodes, apart from the fact that it's kind of the first time we have that sort of conflict between him and Spock. But it's so resonant of the way that McCoy's character is going to be used and uh, like Abby, you were saying that like um, there's a lot of stuff which is laid down in this episode, things like transporter malfunctions and people being split in two and all the rest of it. But one of the big ones is this uh, Spock-McCoy conflict, and it plays out so wonderfully here. I love, love McCoy and, and DeForest Kelly in this episode. Yeah. I mean, and it is, it is really, it becomes one of the, the yeah, the great conflicts of the series because it is really good. The dynamic that they have you know, when you look at it kind of on on paper and particularly, you know, if you see transcripts of it, it shouldn't work the way that it does. It shouldn't work as well as it does, but it really does. Um, there's really this sense of these are two kind of equal but opposite forces on the side, uh, on, you know, on Kirk's sides, basically. Um, and I think that, yeah, the, the, the dynamics, you know, it becomes very important later on, you know, it becomes more so later on, but it is, yeah, it's an important dynamic. And it's just very stark i think to have it's so necessary to have that dynamic because if like episodes like this where kirk is in capacity like having that debate between logic and emotion i think that sort of is what the show is kind of all about from my limited experience um like kirk is already given multiple monologues about that divide in just the five episodes i've seen and this episode is explicitly about that so yeah having a character who through alien means exists to be logical, even as he points out in this episode, he has his human half that he's also right. at war with and makes him a complex character, but then also then having the very empathetic McCoy. Yeah. It's just so key to all these themes that I think Roddenberry wanted to put into this show. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's, it is really important. Um, and I think the way that they do that, although it is, like I said, he's, I feel like this episode is definitely one of those ones you could tell it's early. Cause I feel like Spock isn't quite there yet. Um, and kind mm. of the Spock that will be is not quite there yet. Um, you know, just in kind of some of the things that he says and kind of also in some of the ways that, again, coming back to sort of what we started with, the ways he sort of talks about leadership um, is a very 60s way of thinking about yeah. it. Um, that Spock seems to clearly espouse, although I feel like later Spocks wouldn't. Um, well, actually, I, I think very I would... I think I would slightly cut against that. I don't think it's a 60s view of leadership. I think it's a 40s view of leadership. And Possibly, I think one of the yeah. things that I think one of the things that really comes through is that that concept of leadership and that concept of uh, being in command and being able to um, you know, yeah, command the respect yeah. to the people that are under with you. It's a World War II understanding of what leadership is that's how people were perceived to be during the second world war and of course the people in this uh crew including of course famously uh, james duhan um served on uh, served during the war and so their concept of leadership and the concept of the way that they would view leadership is viewed 
by those experiences it's only you know 20 years later that you know know, Mm -hmm. since that war so so that's i think the dominant shape of of where that narrative of leadership comes from yeah because i found it interesting this sort of that that conversation um Kirk and Spock had about like, well, you obviously can't let yourself be be seen as sort of weaker and incapacitated in front of the crew. Of course I can't. That's, that's so obvious that I can't do that. Um, is That's one of those things where it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm like, oh, I am looking at a text from quite a long time ago. Um, because even, you know, I grew up with Next Generation and, and uh, it, it was interesting watching this and thinking of, you know, to, to you know, classic Trek debate of, of Kirk versus Picard, but see, thinking how Picard would react to this situation or the two Picards. Um, would possibly would be extremely different, and even just how Picard acts, uh, or, or how Cisco might act, are would be extremely different. Um, and and how people respond to that would be extreme. You know, just kind of that that whole that whole thing played s- straightforwardly. Um, I found was like, wow, that is a, a different different concept right there. Yeah, I mean, I mean, speaking of canon and how it compared to other shows, I mean, I mean, JG, you know, I'm not don't care about canon that much when the idea of canon works it's great when it doesn't who cares in my opinion but it is just funny to think about how if you're to sort of associate well this is how starfleet imagines what being a captain is like in whatever time period this is in the fictional universe but Mm. then you just like pop over to the almost analogous discovery and it's like everyone's going to therapy all the time there right. <laughs> it's just like no one would treat a captain like that there's like the, if like uh saru or michael stood up and started or if someone's like started saying i don't think i can lead anymore someone would be like are you okay do you need to see the doctor i'll take over it's fine don't worry about it yeah. and i mean i'm getting my little discovery digs in here but i mean i that's something i also admire about the show too how it does have this very modern thinking way of thinking through these things yeah it's just so different to compare yeah this uh 60s show with like you say jg inheriting that 40s view of leadership with how we much more understand still pop psychology but the pop psychology of the present day right i think that's the thing that i found is that the pop psychology is so much a a mindset that I, you know, that is, yeah, it's harder to relate to and harder to think about. Well, so, yeah. the, I think the, the, the concept of, of and I, I hate to use the word evil, but that's really what this episode spends a lot of time dwelling on. Yeah. But the concept of evil was much more uh, mm-hmm. vividly drawn sort of 20 years after the defeat of the Nazis than it necessarily is, you know, yeah. during the time of, uh, you know, making something like Discovery. And I, I think that's the thing that, you know, it, it's very easy to be um, dismissive. I'm not accusing either of you of being this, of course. Yeah. Um, but it's very easy to be dismissive of the simplicity of the way that a show like Star Trek, um, you know, viewed uh evil or viewed these different sort of facets of human personality but you know this predates you know vietnam it predates uh bader meinhof it predates obviously al-qaeda it predates all these things which have introduced kind of complexity into the world in the world of the night of 1966 1967 evil was very clear and it had a wacky great big swastika on it it wasn't something which was up for a particularly deep debate. There was good, there was evil, and we won. The good side won. As you're you're saying that, it's quite interesting then that if we're talking about this sort of having this, there's good and there's evil mindset, this episode is very clear to say Kirk needs that his evil side. Well, that's actually what I was going to go on to say. I think that's what's so fascinating about it because it has this very simplistic view of evil and one which seems almost naive from a contemporary perspective but at the same time what's very unusual about this episode is the fact that it views that as a necessary evil that it's not something which is simply to be glossed over or to be pushed to one side we see how ineffective the good captain kirk is we see that he loses his ability to command that he loses his ability um to make decisions and and he loses himself within it as well so it's not just about the bigger picture we also do get kind of the the, the smaller picture as well and we, we see a man losing the essence of who he is and yeah sure you can argue that it's it's simplistic but the fact that it's arguing for a necessary evil i think is one of the great strengths of this script not as i said i think i don't think it's necessarily that well articulated and i think the the rape scene as i said before completely 
well, not completely, but largely damages that approach. But the idea that, yeah, if you're going to be in this kind of position of authority, if you're going to have, you do need a degree of ruthlessness. You do need to have a degree of cunning. You do need to have a degree of, you know, um, you know, fairly unambiguous, um, not evil i don't want to use that word again but you know you have to have that yeah that ruthlessness about it and that's that i think that's a perfectly not only do i think that's a perfectly valid thing for the episode to be able to discuss i think it actually does quite a good job of discussing it aside from the one moment where it really really doesn't and that's that's the awkwardness of the script but i i really love the fact that it does try to embrace the idea that that evil isn't something which is just a singular concept or a singular construct, but is something which exists sort of above and beyond that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can, I can see that. Yeah. It's... Yeah, I, I think the resource are on the same point there, but it is just fascinating how it's such a good concept that it's just a little outside of the ambition and scope of this episode to really accomplish. Mm-hmm. But I think it speaks to, I mean, just this is going off of Wikipedia... Uh, this is a very well-regarded episode, which really surprises me. I think maybe okay. because of the fact that it's dealing with these concepts, I haven't gone into these um, citations I've seen <laughs> and seeing what the logic is. But an A- minus from the AV Club in 2009, IO9 rating it 81st out of 700 or so, however many episodes of Star Trek existed in 2014. Um, quite a few top 10 or top 20 placements in ranking all the original series episodes. Okay. Choices. It's Yeah. It's... I can't agree <laughs> but it's, it's um think, yeah it is yeah. just fascinating i think just how this concept has really taken hold with people yeah. and yeah i think they said the concept is great yeah, and of course the 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 idea of the the transporter malfunction that splits you into two yes. that is classic that is you know that's something you can't not you know that's that's so fundamental to sort of both official and unofficial star trek stories i mean not i mean i guess not to my own horn i mean it doesn't matter that much since we're all on the same page here pretty yeah. much but I think that's kind of what I find interesting about the fact that I'm coming to this as an adult with all the pop culture knowledge, but just having not seen the physical episodes yeah. is like, I, I don't see it as, oh, well, it's so classic because it invented the uh, the transporter malfunction and the Bach and McCoy debate. And another fact I read, while we saw it in Naked Time, this is the first production order use of the Vulcan nerve pinch. Like, oh, so it must be a classic because it has all these firsts. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I think you can take a step back and sort of realize that its ambition sort of outstrips its ability yeah. in quite a few ways. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Great, great ambitions, some great ideas that, again, that I think, you know, to, to its credit, people have come back, come back and used, you know, and mm-hmm. like I said, the, the reason I was interested is sort of the, again, I was interested in this origin of the, the transporter malfunction um, and the, and the splitting. Right. It's, you know, such a, like I said, such a, a great premise um, for Trek stories. Um, and, you know, mm-hmm. I, I love an episode that introduces something that can be used in fan fiction in interesting ways. Um, and this would definitely be one of them. Well, and the other big one that it introduces is evil character. Um, yeah. Which, you know, obviously yeah. the, the big sort of uh, Star Trek touchstone for that is Mirror Mirror and Evil Spock yeah. with the goatee beard, which is such yeah. a piece of pop culture. Now, you know, it's, it's, it's such a touchstone. Um, but this is the first time we get to see that. In fact, Mirror Mirror is kind of the reverse of this. You know, in this episode, we get um, uh, Kirk split in two and we get an evil version. And in Mirror Mirror, it's the other way around. He's he's normal Kirk, but he gets an evil ship. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can so, you know, they're very this. much reflections of each other. Yeah. I mean, and you can kind of see this as a precursor to that in a lot of mm. ways. Because I think you see the potential in evil version of you know, evil, yeah, an evil version of the characters we know and what you can do with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you, I guess you see that we're fine more later. Um, but this is kind of a, yeah, this is sort of the, the first the first take on it, I guess you could say. Yeah, and I think if you see it in that way, it's also one of those episodes that you can see, you know, it, it is fertile ground. There is plenty here. Absolutely. Um, which, is, which is going to be explored. Although, you know, the one thing which is never explored is why didn't they just send a shuttle? That was actually my notes here. Did they not have shuttles at this point? So I can it's answer like... this question. I've set myself up here in an extremely <laughs> smug fashion, for which I do apologize. Um, but there's it. there's no in-universe explanation, but there is a paratextual explanation, which is even better. Even better. Um, when uh, Star Trek went to uh, 
uh, order when when they decided to run with the series they decided to uh, design and build a full shuttlecraft prop but the initial order i think was only for seven episodes <laughs> and they didn't want to spend the money on the shuttlecraft prop until they got the next order through for like the next batch of episodes and it was actually worth spending the money on so the reason there's no shuttle in this episode is desolute studios were just too tight to build it outstanding i love that um that's such <laughs> a great television answer um there, there we yeah. are and I, I really wish they'd just put in one line about, oh, the ionization in the atmosphere means we can't use the shuttles either, Captain. Yeah. That would have been fine. Like, yeah. one, right. one line hand wave would have got away with the fact that they didn't want to spend like 30,000 quid on this shuttlecraft yeah. prop or whatever. But, but it's not there. <laughs> so there we go. But yeah. anyway, that's the actual reason yeah. for it. Great. God, I, it's just such a TV thing to like, <laughs> we can't build the shuttle. So we have to invent this new idea of, t I mean, obviously the concept of teleporting had exist, but we have to invent sort of this in-universe version of teleporting for our show and then taking that. And so what if we use the teleporting to tell a different story like this? Like mm -hmm. the chain reaction of things inspiring things, that that's so classic TV. Yeah. And if this, I'm just going to throw the dig in now, if this was a show that was ordered 10 episodes and all those 10 episodes are written with a budget in mind and things planned out and everything had to be little scripts locked in before they shot one frame this would not have happened and honestly we we i mean I, we have been sort of mixed reaction on this episode in particular but the fact that we can have someone look at something that was created out of a budget necessity and be like i can tell a good story out of that is just the best kind of TV stuff yeah. for me. And, you know, you get that adorable dog in a costume. Yeah. <laughs> your alien, your alien creature. <laughs> also out of this budget. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. How much should we think that romper suit set them back? $5.99? $6.99? <laughs> but, you know, it kind of works as well. It looks ridiculous. It's so obviously right. a dog in a romper suit, but it, they kind of get away with it. It's, it's there's there's a phenomenon in Doctor Who which is called taking your bubble wrap seriously, which is when you're presented with the most unconvincing special effect you have ever seen in your life, you have to play it straight. And like it's Absolutely. a dog in a romper suit, they play it yes, straight. It they kind of get away with it. It's got a little horn. It's cute. <laughs> oh, the horns! Are, the horns are the touch that I love more than anything else. That's the thing that makes it. <laughs> When it comes to any sort of like, let's call it budget conscious, um, <laughs> like physical, visual choice like that, I think it just really comes down to conviction of performance and conviction of writing. Mm -hmm. If uh, if the lines the actors are saying, they can have enough conviction and they can say them with enough conviction, you can make almost anything possible. Mm -hmm. And this episode, I mean, yeah. it treats the dog like an alien. The dog's an alien. The dog's an alien. And, it's a lesson I think more things should learn if we're still getting in digs into modern television. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, to, to to go back to me talking about Next Generation a little bit, I mean, that's how we get through the first two seasons of Next Generation is uh, Patrick Stewart has that ability. No matter yeah. what he's saying, and a lot of it's terrible, he will give it the utmost conviction, and you'll believe it, even though, yeah, this is just awful. I, Absolutely. I have I have said this before, and I realize this is slightly off topic, but oh well, never mind. Um, I I think the casting of Patrick Stewart as um, Picard is the single most important casting decision in the entire history of Star Trek, even beyond Shatner Absolutely. and Roy and and Kelly. Yeah. I I just he's so good. It's just yeah. it's just baffling. Anyway, that doesn't have anything to do with this episode at all. Um, yeah, yeah. Well. well We'll talk about that, and if my timing out the schedule is right, three years maybe. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, but yeah, we can definitely get more into that then. Um, yeah, well, on the uh, you brought up fanfic earlier, Abby. I just have to. This is more of a quick aside. I just have to get your thoughts on uh, Kirk fully shirtless with just a towel around his neck, <laughs> saying "Spock to the door," and just oh, let him in. I love that. <laughs> I, you know, this is definitely like, you know, when you when you look back on on star trek you can really see a lot of the things that kind of why it was the sort of the the point zero of of modern fan fiction culture um why it kind of started 
more or less, I mean, there's arguments about about other shows. Um, Man from Uncle has a has a decent claim, um, but kind of why it started really with Star Trek, um, and there's because there's so much in there to just work with. <laughs> You know, I mean, not only, of course, this, this premise, which, again, when I talk about official and unofficial um, use, you know, uses of this trope, well, you know, will come up all the time, this sort of body double thing. Um, but also, yeah, the the way that Kirk and Spock are already interacting is such like, yeah, you know, come in, I'm, you know, wearing my, I'm wearing my towel, um, there's something I can do for you. Um, and even like, you know, the, the, the last, um, that, that very last, extremely weird conversation um, between uh Spock and Chapel that we already talked about. Um, you know, my my notes has, you know, Spock's a kinky bastard for a Vulcan. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you if you yeah. can kind of like, you know, because it becomes kind of a way to play with some of these elements um that otherwise are weird or annoying or not that fun. Um you can kind of play with it in you can kind of play with those elements in these kind of ways. If it's if you know if Spock is being serious to Chapel, that is extremely weird and off-putting. If Spock is projecting his own desires onto this, that's a little more interesting. Yeah. Um. No worries, but I think you mean Rand when you talk Rand, about Rand. Sorry, I'm not, uh, yeah. No, but I, I find that Freudian slip very interesting. Yeah. Because Spock and Chapel, I mean, obviously they have yeah. a scene in Naked Time where they confess love for each other. Yeah. I'm. I've been told they have chemistry elsewhere in the series. And that's something that Strange New Worlds has really run with. Yeah, uh, I'm only like five or six episodes in. Um, we'll we'll definitely talk about that on this podcast whenever I finish that season. Uh, depending on how when it subverts the backlog, you might have already heard about heard yeah. it, listeners. But regardless, I, I just find that interesting how we have modern Trek sort of bringing to fruition um, these sort of fanfic ideas of these yeah. characters, like having feelings for each other. Like actually getting to, if not fully hook up, at least like make more text what was subtext. Mm-hmm. And I, I think this goes into what I've pitched on Twitter, which is Strange New World season two should just have Kirk and Spock bone already. Just it give should. It, to us. it absolutely. I mean, I you know, I I think as a as a you know as as someone who loves Star Trek but also has you know this sort of academic interest in this subject, um, I would be I would love to see it just to see what happens yeah i mean <laughs> i'd love to see it just because i want to see anson mount with his shirt off but that's an entirely prurient yeah. reason I mean, all all, these, are all, these are all great things these are all great things but i think you know to kind of make that you know it would be really fascinating to see like how far they're willing to go with that um and what the reactions will be you know i'm, I'm very interested in, in reactions and how these things get interpreted there's an um, so absolutely yeah. brilliant episode of um, Star Trek Voyager. There's words you don't hear very often. Um, called, <laughs> I, I say that as a huge, massive Star Trek Voyager fan. Um, called The Shoot, um, which is about um, Tom and Harry uh, basically stuck in a male prison together. And it is, in a very real sense, queer. Uh, it's mm-hmm. an amazing episode. It's basically slash fiction uh, in yeah. canon. And if you haven't yeah. seen it, I strongly, strongly recommend anybody goes and views it. It's a yeah. really, really great episode. It's absolutely fantastic. It's yeah. full of, of loads of really great, fascinating sort of details. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, things like that. Star Trek has nudged up against it before. Right. There's, but there's also, there's a weird scene, like, especially talk, sort of talking about the sort of the sexuality of this episode. There's a very fascinating moment where um, Evil Kirk, just after he's beamed up, um, after Good Kirk and Spock have walked out of the transporter room and then he appears and the transporter technician comes back into the room and Evil Kirk basically is just cracking onto him. He's like gives him the eye and he's clearly cruising yeah. him and it's a really interesting dynamic for Shatner to play it that way. Whether it's intentional or not, I would probably assume not. But it's that slightly, because Shatner's playing it slightly kind of I suppose, mm-hmm. horny, yeah. really, <laughs> but animalistic, <laughs> let's say. Uh, but it really comes across that, that at that moment, like Evil Kirk really wants to really wants to bone the transporter chief. And it's a very, it's such a small moment, but it's very, 
uh, again, if you want to get into Slash, it's it's very fertile yeah. ground. That that's you know that yeah. is also something that exists within Kirk. And briefly, yeah. whilst these two parts of his uh, psyche have been separated, we get to see his kind of more uh, homosexual side or his more homoerotic side coming out. Yeah, and you know, yeah. So I mean, there's there's so much to to work with in these in this this episode and these episodes in general that you know it it and so much work that fans have done um that you know i think the you know how they play it in in season two of strange new worlds is is going to be interesting no matter what um but there is a lot of you know real you know fast because we are in a we're also in a very different era of of media and sort of what is on television what isn't and also in relations between um fans and producers you know, massively different um, era of, of, of relations there, um, you know, kind of from the sort of, you know, again, Star Trek is sort of this this touchstone in contemporary fandom and also in contemporary research on fandom, you know. So when we were looking at sort of work on fandom from, you know, an academic work from the early 90s, you know, the, the thing people always talk about as an example of, okay, this is how fans are treated is, of course, Shatner's, you know, the, the SNL Get a Life sketch. Um, and so, you know, and, and there's a sort of idea that, okay, this was how um, producers thought of fans. Now, of course, the relationship is extremely different. Um, so how they, how they play it in Stranger Worlds, um, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of potential and a lot of, uh, yeah, it'll be an interesting case study either, you know, no matter which way it goes, I guess I could say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's just one one other thing I kind of want to draw attention to as well, uh, which we haven't really touched on yet, which is I think this is a really well-directed episode. It's mm -hmm. slightly unusual in the way that it's directed, um, but there's a few moments which really stand out, like especially the there's a little bit of cheesy doubling going on where it's clearly, you know, William Shatner facing us and some stunt guy with his back to us in another costume. Um, but there's a few moments, like the moment in sickbay when the two Kirks are holding hands. Again, if you want to go back to the Slash stuff, plenty of fertile <laughs> ground there to dig into. But when, oh, yeah. when, the, when the more compassionate Kirk is trying to sort of comfort or control or help control the, the more animalistic one, there's that split screen effect. And for like the mid 60s that's really good there's mm -hmm. no cgi there's it's just literally you know you film uh one half of the uh scene with a black bit card across the camera flip the film film the other bit and do it the other way around and that's it but it's incredibly effective so you know all credit to yeah. leo penn for uh, as the director i also for, think the fight they have right afterwards sorry sorry about that oh, yeah. yeah yeah no 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 yeah, the fight they have right afterwards it's it's just so. I mean, obviously, when you can't see Shatner's face, the other person is a more muscular stunt <laughs> double. But um, the editing, I think, really makes it work. And just like the quick cutting back, and it's something that every TV show doing two people at the same time, having them in close quarters. I mean, you can see it on the CW all the time now. They love their evil doubles over there, especially on their superhero shows. It's a classic trope. But yeah, but I still think that the coherency here. Maybe I'm not giving the sixes enough credit, but I think it really is impressive yeah, to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just also want to shout out the directors, Leo Penn. Really glad I clicked through on his Wikipedia article. Father of Sean Penn, who knew? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I think he does an incredible job here. And it's something that you've alluded to before on previous episodes as well, Kev. It's craft. It's not flashy. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily... Uh, something which is uh, requires great technical skill, um, but it's just craft. It's just people who know how to do the thing that they do really well. There's a couple of jump cuts which are slightly ungainly, where they've clearly locked off the camera, and then you know William Shatner's run around the set, put on a different shirt, and then jump back into shot, and then they start shooting again. And there's a slight jump, especially when they're down. There's one very notable one, I think, when Kirk. Uh, Evil Kirk is in engineering and he kind of jumps down from the, the ceiling or whatever it is and there's a slight jump. But but as a general rule, the craft here is incredible. And you yeah, you just you see it in those moments of the doubling, you see it in the moments of the fight scenes. And that's I don't want to say that that's something that's been lost with CGI, but it's something which definitely had a very different tone or tenure uh, 
uh, when you were having to deal with, you know, what is essentially just a practical effect back in the 60s. And it really, it does deserve a lot of credit. I think it's, it's really, really good work. And I think probably uh, with that, we can we can wrap the episode there and move on to our recommendations section. Um, so, Abby, you're our guest this week. So uh, why don't you uh, kick us off? Uh, what would you care to recommend? What do I care to... I, I, recommend, um, I recommend the Pet Shop Boys. <laughs> Let's go with that. Um, <laughs> I, I recommend their entire body of work. Um, and I recommend that if you aren't unfamiliar with it, um, now is a great time to become familiar with it. Um, so that's that's my recommendation right there. You will get no argument from me. I'm a massive uh, Pet Shop Boys fan. Um, I, I've seen them live a few times. I've seen them a couple of Pride, uh, Pride marches as well. Uh, yeah, Pet Shop Boys are awesome. Yeah. Yes, that's my recommendation. <laughs> Fantastic. Is there are, are there any particular albums that you enjoy, or is there is there like a um, game I mean, I, that you would you would care to uh, give her one? As a way in, um, I, I I often recommend Very as a way in. I think if you oh, if you get Very is exactly the right answer. Well done. <laughs> otherwise the episode would be be erased somebody else would do this um yeah no because i think it it really kind of if it 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 shows what they do um if you get very you get them and there's other ways you can go i listen to introspective a lot these days um but i think yeah very start with very and see where you go from there i uh i remember very being released and very was my gateway drug so uh, that's uh, that's why yeah. that's why I, that's why I say yeah that's that's yep. the right answer absolutely yep. I completely agree. Yep. <laughs> Fantastic, thank you very much, um, Kev. What would you care to go for this week? Uh, first, I just want to comment. Um, I I'll, I'll should try to give Vary a listen, though I don't have much to contribute to that conversation because <laughs> as I often joke, the only albums I listen to front to back are Weird Al albums, and that's a joke that well not is well isn't true is very true in spirit. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yes, Pet Shop Boys sounds great. Uh, I am going to recommend a specific comedian. Um, I don't think she is a how definitely not a household name. So I want to make sure she becomes one. I want to talk about Kylie Brakeman um, at Dead Eye Brakeman B R A K E M A N on Twitter. Uh, her pinned tweet is a little thread of videos she's re- sketched video sketches she's recorded for twitter little one to two minute videos of her playing a specific character all extremely funny um some of i quote these all the time they're some of my favorite things i highly recommend you check out her work uh i'm sure she's also on instagram doing the same videos Uh, and and she is one of a former podcast called artists on artists on artists on artists a where she and three other improvisers and on her team so to speak I'll improvise meant like Hollywood uh, people in some capacity. And it's a improvised panel on animal handlers, a panel on location scouts on people who are snubbed for Oscars, just like doing those sort of a 24 DGA round table kind of discussions, but with very funny people making up industry, well, <laughs> real industry jobs most of the time but making up these ridiculous characters and then going through with it. Uh, artists on artists on artists on artists, fantastic podcast. And Kylie Brickman is specifically from that podcast. Uh, she is just a brilliant comedian who I highly recommend following. Uh, unfortunately, by the time you hear this, um, you will have missed her Edinburgh fringe show called Linda Hollywood's Big Night. It's, uh, I saw a preview of it, which is why she's on the brain and why I'm recommending her. And it was absolutely fantastic. So, I mean, JG, as you're still in the past, you hopefully have a chance <laughs> if you if you go to the festival, can check her out. Uh, for everyone else, hope she brings it forward again and does it in some other capacity, either in Los Angeles or wherever. Uh, yeah, it's a brilliant show. Maybe clips or something will post it online. Still a, a name to watch. Let's put it that way. Fantastic. I both live in the past and in Edinburgh, so yes, I I, I will see if I can uh, I can see if I can track her down and and see her at the fringe. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to recommend, although I use the word recommend in its loosest possible sense, um, I guess season four of Stranger Things, it's a very guarded recommendation from me this week, and more more because I think it's an interesting 
season to talk about than I think necessarily that it's a great season of television. Um, the most obvious thing to mention is the bloated running time, which it does not justify in any way, shape, or form. Once you actually start to sit down and watch it, it kind you kind of it's easy, I suppose, enough to get swept away in it, but it doesn't need these vast 80 or 90 minute episodes it's ridiculous it's completely unnecessary but having said that there is still a lot of good material in there you know the core cast is uh, still fantastic um they're still pushing the story forward that's fine um more than anything else you know there's the whole Kate bush thing and i love Kate bush i'm a huge Kate bush fan and i'm simply thrilled that people are getting to experience her music it's kind of been interesting to watch the whole cultural debate around gatekeeping and whether uh, you come to an artist, and I'm using very heavy inverted commas here, I'm doing air quotes, the right way, um, which is just one of those things which is such, we, we don't swear on this podcast, but you can assume a long string of expletives here, such nonsense, such absolute BS. Um, I just think it's great that people are having the opportunity to be exposed uh, to really phenomenal artists, somebody who I absolutely adore and I've loved for years and indeed decades at this point. Um, and it's fantastic. Kate Bush seems really happy with it, so that's great as well. Um, and, it, you know, there's a lot of empowering stuff in there. There's also um, there's a weird undertone to this season, which is very much not empowering as well. It's, it's a strange melange of stuff. Um, and so that's why it's kind of a guarded recommendation. I, I don't want to go into lots of plot details and all of that kind of stuff at, at this sort of point, but it's it's... It's worth a watch. It's certainly always interesting, if not necessarily always good. Uh, but it continues that that run of uh, Stranger Things, whereas, whereby rather, it's kind of a show that exists. I'm not sure that it should, but it does. And the world is kind of better for that. It's better for having weird, strange, awkward, curious, bizarre, Kate Bush loving shows in it. So, you know, that's kind of good enough for me. So that's my recommendation this week, uh, Stranger Things. I have not started the fourth season yet, um, but that's basically the party line I've been hearing from other people is, uh, I mean, for all the mockery got when it was coming out, oh, the most expensive Netflix series ever. Oh, 80-minute episodes in a two-and-a-half-hour finale. Oh, it, and all the cast looks so old and out of place. And, like, and oh, the first three seasons were like, like, Netflix is in a hard place right now. And uh, it's, it's sort of an easy target being the biggest thing on it. But everyone who watches it is like, well, yes, there's obviously issues, but it still has that bit of a magic to it. And so I'm interested in experiencing that for myself, uh, hopefully soon. It is worth mentioning that the wig that Will has to wear is increasingly terrible. I mean, it makes <laughs> oh, no. it, it makes Chekhov's wig in Star Trek in season two and three look positively natural by comparison. It's oh. really bad. But you have a young cast. What can you do about the fact that they're aging? not that much yeah. <laughs> you know that's that's the same with uh, millie bobby brown you know like she's a great actor she's gone on to be in godzilla she's phenomenal in the series but you know she's also growing up and there's just a limited amount you can do about that so i'm afraid bad wigs are very much to the fore <laughs> i mean i would say what you do about that is time jump the classic tv standard well that would be the other approach is, yeah yeah no one's Anyways, this is just going back to the same debate about modern TV. <laughs> so whatever. <laughs> okay, fantastic. Well, I think um, we can probably wrap things up there for now. So, um, Abby, thank you very much for joining us this week. Is there anything you want to plug or anything you want to mention before um, we uh, wrap up? Yes. If you want to read my academic thoughts on some of the things, well, actually, none of the things we touched on. Um, I do have uh, <laughs> my first my first academic uh, monograph out, which is called um, Fan Sites. It's uh, out with the uh, University of Iowa Press. Um, so if you're interested in that, I've been told for an academic book, it's fairly accessible. Um, that's what my aunt told me. So... <laughs> <laughs> fairly accessible. Um, so what high recommendation is there? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we'll plug that. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, did you want to share your Twitter as well? Oh, yeah. Um, I guess uh, my, my Twitter is um, at Vuelig, so uh, V-O-E-L-L-I-G, um, and you can uh, you can find me there, um, although not being particularly professional on it. Uh, I have a different one for that, which I guess I should be plugging instead, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great Twitter, I have to say. Every time you're live tweeting, whatever's on, random, randomly on Netherlands Randomly TV, on Dutch I... television. That's my brand. Yeah, exactly. 
and then for the usual, you can find us on Twitter at Talking Trek to You. Email us talking. Oh, sorry, at Talk Trek to You because of Twitter at limits. Email us at Talking Trek to You at gmail.com. Find me on Twitter at Kev Kozer, K E V K O E S E R. I also frequently guest with Abby as well on the podcast Total Massacre from Rowan Kaiser. Uh, you can find, yeah, Abby is on a few episodes there for sure. Uh, JG's writings are at www.jgmcquarrie.scott. That is J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E.scott. And his other podcast is Beatles Stuffology, where he and his co-host Andrew Deacon do Beatles songs, song by song, in order of release. Uh, yeah, please like, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast, whatever podcatcher you use to help other people find us. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And Abby, thank you very much for joining us on our trek this week. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. And we can leave it there for this week. Next week, we are going to embrace, well, we're going to embrace Star Trek comedy. And I'm afraid that means we're going to have to deal with Mud's women. And, you know, Star Trek comedy can be good and Star Trek comedy can be bad. But without wanting to prejudge anything, I will say no more for the time being. But of course, as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking. Thank you.